Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. Today, we'll be chatting with the head of the state's healthcare exchange, and our healthcare expert, reporter Megan Messerly, is here to help with the questions. We're recording this a week ahead of time, so no headlines today or no to and fro at the end with Elizabeth Thompson. A reminder to everybody, if you like us, rate, rate us on iTunes and Google Play and Stitcher. Tell your friends. Even tell your enemies. Tell people you see on the street. We appreciate it. Heather Korbulik has been the executive director of the Silver State Exchange for almost two years now. She's also been an ombudsman for the state on health care issues. Heather, welcome to Indie Matters. Thank you for having me. So I'm going to start off and then I'll let the, someone who actually knows what she's talking about take over. But uh, let me just ask you, I, I think people out there in the audience, the question that most people have about health care, and, and, and I know this is not a simple yes or no answer, but this is the question they have. Are my premiums going up this year, right? That's the most common question. Are they? Yes. And, and, it is a simple answer. And thank you for joining us on this week. <laughs> <The end. laughs> but, but, but seriously, to tell, tell people why and tell sure. people all the factors that go into that. So health insurance premiums have gone up every year, even before the Affordable Care Act. The average premium increase pre-ACA was about 8% annually. With the Affordable Care Act coming in and community rating, meaning that everybody's allowed in, there's no pre-existing condition discrimination. Uh, we saw rates increase significantly back in 2014 when we started. And then we've seen moderate increases and then recently more steep increases. 2018 was almost an anomaly with the KF or Kaiser Family Foundation saying we went up about an average of 48%. That has everything to do with the uncertainty that was created in Washington, D.C. over the fight for the Affordable Care Act. Whether it was going to be repealed or not, all kinds of different manifestations of that repeal. People just didn't know. Exactly. And so insurance companies react to that, right? Exactly. When you don't understand what your risk looks like, you have to factor that in. And that's what insurance companies do. And they they pile it onto premiums. So before I let Megan jump in here and start asking some questions, well, what's your day like? You wake up in the morning and you and you click on the internet and you're you know, kind of closing your eyes, you know, not knowing what you might see that day? <laughs> well, Megan knows. Uh, I wake up at around like 4 a.m. Mm-hmm. and I look at Twitter immediately and I start looking to see what the lay of the healthcare land looks like. You mean you day. read the independent? I read then, the indie then, first then and you go then into, I go that's what right I thought to you healthcare meant. policy, right? <laughs> Uh, And we take a look and see what kind of proposals are being proposed. I mean, in 2017, it was a little bit more dramatic. And now it's more of a slow um, kind of steady rule changing that is creating uncertainty. So, I mean, jumping into that, you know, we we know that the administration has these proposed rules changes. They're going through the works. Um, we're going to find out, you know, so we have the finalized rules, but now we're just waiting for everything to, to sort of come out and be, mm-hmm. and be processed. Um, you know, thinking about where we've been, you know, over the course of 2017 with all the efforts to repeal and replace, with the individual mandate going away, with the rule changes now, how concerned are you now compared to where you were last year? I think I'm a little bit less concerned, and it might have something to do with just being exhausted from being concerned. But, um, I think I'm, I'm I'm feeling a little bit more confident that the ACA survived the last year and a half, which, you know, it's been under attack since the day it was passed. But, but the last year and a half has been more and more intense. Um, over and over again, we've seen that subsidies work, that in, especially in Nevada, we've seen dramatic decreases in our uninsured rate, and our, ben, our economy has benefited. So I feel like 
like it's the right thing for Nevada. I think our cult, our country is starting to wake up to the fact that we need to have something in place. And maybe we're going to change it in small ways to improve it, hopefully. Um, but the, the, fu- the foundation is pretty solid is how I feel right now. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I mean, despite that uncertainty last year, you guys actually saw an increase in the number of people who enrolled, which was not the case across the board. So mm-hmm. talk to us a little bit about why you guys think that happened. I think that has everything to do with a robust and very strong campaign for marketing and outreach. Um, we have our own state-based exchange here using the federal platform for now. Um, and we invest heavily into our marketing and outreach campaign. And when this last year happened, the Trump administration cut about 90% of our and education component from their budget, um, which really resulted in a 5% decrease in enrollment in those federally facilitated states where we saw a 2% increase. We currently insure 91,000 Nevadans through the exchange. Yeah. And I know that, you know, going in and thinking about, you know, there have been all these conversations about repeal and replace. How is that actually going to impact enrollment? Are people going to think because they've seen these headlines over the summer about, you know, what's going on with the Affordable Character? Are they going to, you know, see that it's gone away? But obviously you guys, you know, did a lot of events. You guys did a lot of advertisement and promotion to sort of try and counterbalance that and, and remind people that this this still exists and you still yeah. need to get insured and that kind of thing. The best part about what's happened over the last year, and, and it could be a silver lining on the theatrics from Washington, D.C., which is a real investment in Nevada and our state-based marketplace. The Nevada Health Link has become the resource for Nevada consumers, but our state exchange and the Silver State Health Insurance Exchange, the state agency, has also become a resource for, for media, for lawmakers, for stakeholders who are interested in making sure that Nevadans stay insured. We've been really fortunate to have a governor who's supportive of the work that we're doing, specifically in his office. Mike Wilden has been over and over again, a champion for the work that we do. And then really having, um, you know, a stakeholders, those rural counties that were potentially going to go without insurance, those uh, lawmakers that are, that are, that's their district came to us and were wondering what it is, what can we do to save what's happening in those areas and how can we support the exchange? So that was the silver lining. Then we had community partners all across the state really come together to make sure that people knew about our shortened enrollment period and got connected. Well, let me, let me ask a little bit, because you kind of glossed over this. Maybe people will be interested a little bit in the history. You mentioned, and maybe people even hear you because you said it kind of under your breath, that you're operating on the federal uh, platform mm-hmm. now. That's not how it started, and that's right. not how it was conceived. And I think some people may still be confused about that people had trouble getting onto the exchange. There were problems. Uh, address exactly what happened there and, and, and what, pe- what, 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 what went wrong and then what had to be done. In 2014, uh, we were set up to become or to operate as a state-based marketplace, fully operational using our own technology and our own consumer assistance center. Um, That technology was being built at the same time as a bunch of other states, 13 other states were building their own technology to do essentially the same functionality to enroll individuals um, and to determine their eligibility. So when our system rolled out, there were significant problems. And in 2015, our board decided that we would no longer use that system and we would use healthcare.gov for eligibility and enrollment. Um, And we've been able to use their system. It it functioned, it worked as it needed to, and and see increases in enrollment. However, they're going to start charging us fees. Um, And those fees increase year over year. And in 2019, they go to 3% of the revenue that we collect, or 3% of the premiums collected in our state. 
the state-based marketplace, the Nevada Exchange, we collect 3.15%. So that that uh, will exhaust our revenue and leave us with a very small percentage to do the work that we need to do. That's why we're exploring the opportunity uh, to go to our own state-based marketplace again. What's, what, what's your budget? Our budget is $10 million annually. And so you uh, you mentioned that I mean, you have to educate people. You have to tell mm-hmm. people where you are. You have, to tell, you have to let them know what the options are. Uh, you mentioned this robust marketing. Uh, how much mm-hmm. how much have you spent on that? And, and, and can is there any way to judge? I mean, people always want to know from government, are you getting bang for your buck? So so how much are you spending and what are the results? Sure. So in two, in fiscal year 2019, state fiscal year, we're set to or we're budgeted to spend $3.2 million. And that's for marketing, outreach, and education. How is that being done? To give us some TV ads? Is it mail TV ads. We have a very robust TV ad campaign. We have digital. We have a uh, a significant social media presence. um, And we are in movie theaters. We have driving billboards. We are basically everywhere. So thinking about, um, you know, the, the transition to the state-based marketplace, you know, you mentioned the the problems early on, you know, when all these states were developing their own systems mm-hmm. from scratch. Um, talk to us a little bit about what the process is like, you know, fi- finding the new vendor. You guys are looking at people who've developed, vendors who have developed platforms that work in other states and are currently operational in other states. Correct. 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 Uh, yeah. So we have been very prescriptive. We, our RFP is still currently open in, in the process. Um, it was posted on uh, recently that uh, the the finalized vendors who will come and give demonstrations of their product. But we were explicit in our RFP that we are not looking to recreate any kind of technology. We're looking for a functional platform that has been operational and successful for at least one year. Um, And and we're really um, excited about the potential because these vendors who have created this exchange technology really are limited in who they can sell it to and where they can go with it. So the whole country that is operating as a federally facilitated marketplace is all eyes on Nevada. Can they do this successfully? And can they realize the cost savings that they've anticipated? So in 2020, we anticipated spending $12 million on healthcare.gov's platform. Uh, whereas with vendors and through conversations with vendors over the last couple of years, we're pretty sure we can spend about $6 million on that same technology and have a better user experience for consumers. Right. So you're thinking, you know, possibly if other states see what Nevada does, if this goes well, this could be sort of a model for other states to follow as they're looking at these, you know, fees of continuing to use the federal platform. There are absolutely other states watching what we're doing. They've called. (laughs) (laughs) How many of them? Do you want to tell us all of them? (laughs) I'm happy to share the ones that operate like we do right now, which is Oregon and New Mexico are paying specific attention. And they have that hybrid model between the – Yeah. So thinking about, again, you know, what's going to happen this year, you know, you said premiums are going to go up. We don't know by how much, though, yet. That's still sort of what what remains to be seen through the rate setting process. You know, again, just thinking about some of the uncertainty and what we saw happen with all the insurance carriers last year, you know, not knowing if they want to stay on. And we had that situation in the rurals where, you know, we we didn't have someone, you know, a carrier providing coverage to those 14 counties for a while um, until Silver Summit stepped in. Do you think we're going to have that kind of a situation? this year? Do we need to be worried about that? I don't think we're out of the water. Um, There are still so many uncertainties happening right now because of these proposed rules that we've alluded to um, that that I'm not confident in saying that there won't be Bear Counties. But I will tell you that I don't think we're going to experience any of the same dramatics that we experienced this last year. I feel like the conversations I've had with our carriers are that they're invested in Nevada and uh, want to make it work.
Mm-hmm. And then as far as, you know, thinking about the premium increases again, um, you know, again, we don't know how much they're going to be, um, but can we expect to see those uh, cost increases also get loaded the same way it was sort of loaded last year where it got loaded onto the silver plan so that people who were subsidized didn't see the increases, but the folks who aren't still might see those increases? Yeah, absolutely. So when the subsidy or when the rate goes up, consumer subsidies go up too. And this last year we had to do, uh, our state along with the rest of the country for the most part, had to do some fancy footwork with what's called a silver load to protect insurance companies and consumers for the from those dramatic rate increases. Um, and that's still something that the um, CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, have been sort of non-committal about, but we are moving forward as if that's going to be an option. Can I ask you a question about how you see your role? Because uh, from reading all of Megan's stories, uh, you seem to me, and based on what I know about your background, having been an ombudsman for, I think, long-term care and those mm-hmm. kinds you're an advocate for health care. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a, you, you want as many people to be covered as possible. You want people to have good health care. The model that you, that you have or stuck with, as some people would describe it, is Obamacare. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... You have to be apolitical, but on the other hand, you come across to some extent as an advocate for Obamacare. Do you think you would be that way for any other model? Do you see things that could be changed that would make your job easier? Absolutely. I mean, I think that there's an opportunity with the existing framework of the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, to develop a, a, a system of health care that really does let everybody have access to affordable rates. That's something where I see a problem. So I think for the people who are being subsidized on the exchange, they're getting smoke and deals. There are really nice and affordable plans available to them. But for people who are over 400% of the federal poverty level who can't access subsidies, they're getting the brunt of the entire um, uh, rate increases. These are, are these the working poor? Or? They're lower middle income. So so those are like, you know, 48,000 and above um, who cannot afford and they're being priced out of the market. And we need to be concerned about those folks. Well, how do you fix that? I mean, you have experience now. Mm-hmm. Are there possible fixes that you've thought about? Absolutely. My my dream scenario would be that, uh, and it's something that's been proposed in D.C. but hasn't really got very much momentum, but would be to relieve the cap on the subsidy level. So anybody over 400 would have access to the same equation of subsidies just based on the, their increasing income. That's, to me, the most simple and straightforward way to allow people in. What's the opposition to that? Is, is it ideological? Because it sounds like as you get more and more that way, you're going towards essentially what would be known in some places as nationalized health care, right? Mm-hmm. The government is essentially subsidizing your health care. Is that the opposition? Is, that, is there another way to do it? Well, I think we're still leveraging private market when we do when we open up those doors to having assistance for people. Right now, we're just blocking them out. And if we can't figure out a way to get them in the pool, then we're going to continue to see increasing premiums for everybody. So, I mean, yes, I'm sure that it's a political or ideological uh, um, opposition. But I think if you really think about how do we help people access insurance, it's going to be targeting those folks who are being blocked out now because of the rates. Let me just ask one more question before I... Let Megan jump in again. You mentioned the uninsured rate and how much it's dropped. Mm-hmm. Uh, how much of that is because the governor expanded Medicaid? Well, what percentage of that drop is because the governor expanded Medicaid? And what percentage, is, if you know the answer to this, is just people getting access through the, the exchange or other ways? 
I don't know the percentages, um, and I can't do math that quickly, but <laughs> I, I would say that, that what we've seen was we went from what depends on what you looked at, 23% uninsured rate in 2013-14, to being about 10% now, and about 7% of those individuals are not of legal status, and so they're not able to access one of those programs. So that's left with about 2 or 3% of uninsured rate, which is right on par with Massachusetts, who's had you know open insurance forever. That's remarkable. I guess I maybe if you've written this and I and I forgot about it, Megan. But so essentially, I didn't realize. But by the way, that seventy percent or so of the of the ten percent are are undocumented folks. I didn't. That's that. So we really have very few Nevada citizens who don't have access to health care now. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And for the hospitals too, that's a large portion of their uncompensated care that they're they're paying for is that population without legal status because there's not another option for for health insurance. So the sort of I think the whole health system is sort of um, you know figuring out how to respond to that mm-hmm. as a whole. Um, I wanted to ask, obviously, the, the big thing last fall was that the individual mandate, you know, went away. I know you're not a fortune teller. I'm not going to ask you to get out your crystal ball. <laughs> but I mean, what can we expect to have happen um, with it being gone? I mean, what are what are sort of the the, the health policy wonks saying about what's going to happen? Um, are people going to say, well, I don't need health care. I'm going to leave it. What's going to happen? Well, you know, as well as I do, that the Congressional Budget Office has some estimates about what will happen. And it's, a, it's, it's potentially about a 10% decrease in enrollment, 10 to 15 percent. And I think for the most part, health policy wonks are saying that those individuals are mostly going to be between the ages of 26 and 40. They won't have a lot of high health care needs, which means that we're going to lose some of the younger and more healthier people from our risk pool, which just means that insurance companies are going to have to add those risks and that rate increase to the healthy people that remain. So what the exchange is focused on, what can we do here? And we can leverage and use efficiently our marketing and outreach dollars to make sure that Nevadans who are in those age ranges who are potentially likely to leave because there's no more mandate are going to understand that if you go without insurance, the cost of medical care will bankrupt you. You need to protect yourself and your family and access insurance. And most likely, there will be a subsidy available to you. How does that work? Because I know a lot of people, too, looking at some of these plans, they see these really high deductibles, you mm-hmm. know, and they say, well, do I even, you know, want a plan if I'm going to have to meet that, you know, $5,000 sure. deductible before I can even, you know, get my care? I mean, what, how do you guys sort of walk people through that or con- convince them that the health care is still worth something even though you have those really high deductibles? I think it's important. It depends on the population that you're looking at. If you look at our ad campaign from this last year, you see an older woman walking by a pool, drinking a Mai Tai and slipping and falling and cracking her back and and the costs of back surgery. Um, And then we have younger folks riding on mountain bikes, falling off, needing shoulder surgery. So what we're trying to demonstrate is, you know, yes, uh, a, a high deductible is something that you will have to pay for. But but the costs outside of that are still astronomical, and you are going to be responsible for those, whereas if you had insurance, you'd be protected. So thinking about some of these people who might you know, be looking for other options, um, as you know, you know and we've talked about, that the Trump administration had these you know, proposed rule changes, one of them being the um, expansion of the time. Uh, you're allowed to use a short-term limited duration plan. I'll let you talk a little bit about how that sort of works with Nevada with our, uh, with our regulations. But I mean, how do you see the expansion of those plans, you know, letting people um, stay on those sort of short-term you know, catastrophic coverage type plans longer? How is that going to affect some of these, you know, maybe the younger folks who say, well, you know, I want something for sort of worst case scenario, but, you know, I don't go to the doctor for an annual checkup. So Mm -hmm. maybe I'm fine with this sort of short term um, low coverage plan. 
I think it's really important for people to understand that the benefits are not nearly the same in a short-term limited duration plan or in associated health plan, which are these two rules that are being proposed. Before you go on, yeah. I, I know I know that I, I understand this to some extent. Megan knows it inside and out. You know it inside and out. People who are listening may not know that what a short-term limited duration plan is. So, so, so <laughs> you can yeah, explain it, please. I'll roll up my sleeves and tell them Good. here. Um, yeah, so short-term limited duration is really supposed to be short-term and for limited duration. They're, they're in between plans, similar to a COBRA plan, where if you're in between uh, jobs and you need to purchase a health plan for emergency purposes only, um, they have extremely high deductibles. They don't cover things like maternity or prescription drugs. They b- basically cover emergency services. So they're not meant to be long-term options, which is why in Nevada revised statute, they're currently capped at 185 days. Um, and where I'm really concerned is that these are going to be uh, sold to people who are not being subsidized, so they're making too much money to get subsidies on the exchange, that they're going to be directed at younger, healthier people, and that those people are really not going to get the benefit packages that they need or that they actually are going to want. Um, and so, so we're looking at those, and I've been very uh, outspoken about my concerns about how those will impact the marketplace. Because when you attract a young or healthy person, or when you attract somebody out of the same risk pool, basically you're setting up two different risk pool, and you're leaving on exchange only those people who need the full comprehensive budget or um, benefits. Maybe they have a heart condition or maybe they have asthma, whatever it may be. They have a pre-existing condition. They need that entire benefit scope and they are going to be the ones that stay, meaning sick risk pool, higher premiums. I guess what I'm wondering about that is uh, are there minimum standards in statute or in regulations that these plans have to meet? They have to meet some solvency standards, and they have to um, basically comply with the regulations. But they're they're designed to be outside of the Affordable Care Act scope, so they're not meeting the standards of the ten essential health benefits you're guaranteed. Uh, I mean, are, are they? I mean, is, is is the word bare bones inaccurate, or is that what essentially what they are? Bare bare bones. Bare is bare what bones. I would say, yes. And so, so, I mean, that that can be so dangerous mm-hmm. for people to get that, and, and the strain that that would place, you would think, on their own finances. And then that causes all kinds of other problems, right? Potentially going into social services. Then, I mean, there, there's it's it's not the right the wrong phrase is boomerang effect. Maybe it's a domino uh, mm-hmm. effect on other kinds of services, right? Exactly. I mean, if you think about a hospital or a physician who is now seeing somebody in an emergency scenario where some of the things that they need to access are not even covered in emergency scenarios, you're having uncompensated care for the hospital systems. I mean, it has impacts on the economy. So I don't even remember what um, Megan's original question was after I made you explain all that. <laughs> <laughs> was, uh, I was going to, I was asking sort of what, what the impact of those, you know, are going to be. And I, I'm, you know, I'm assuming your answer is that it's, it's, you know, people are going to be drawn to the, the short-term plans mm-hmm. as well as the association health plans. Although mm-hmm. I know for, you know, some small businesses, they're really interested mm-hmm. um, in the association health plans and the way that could allow them to sort of structure um, benefits for their employees. I think that there is a silver lining there. And if done right, then that would be uh, an answer for some of these small business organizations to come together and purchase associated health plans. But what concerns me about the way that the regulation has been proposed by the Department of Labor is that it's very unclear on who maintains regulatory authority. So if the feds maintain regulatory authority, we won't have the ability to prescribe what those plans must look like in our state. And so that's where some of that rub comes in. 
Sure, sure. So let's 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 present some scenarios so people can understand what might happen to them. People are listening; they have health care. They may have even gotten it um, from you. What if what if uh, tomorrow or the next day Congress actually did repeal the entire Affordable Care Act? What happens to people? Well, I mean, you would hope that their plan would stay for the rest of the year, but uh, there are no guarantees and there are out clauses. So insurance carriers could pack up today and say you're no longer insured. And that means that we will see damn, I mean, we'll see probably loss of jobs because there's been a significant amount of jobs developed as a result of the ACA just in Nevada. We'll see hospitals go uncompensated and we'll see um, individuals who have very serious medical needs not able to access those needs. Um, and that could be very damaging for somebody, let's say, on dialysis or who has a kidney problem or who has a heart condition, who's getting regular treatment, cancer. Um, you know, what does that mean for you? You don't have care. But, you know, the problem for Nevada, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, has always been that we, because of the relatively small population, it's it's not that great a market for insurance companies to be in in the first place. And there's always the danger, and we saw kind of a manifestation of that that you talked about earlier, that these insurance companies say, you know, it's just not worth doing business there. I mean, that has to be something that you have to worry about all the time, right? Well, constantly. And I think it's not just because I care about the individuals across the state who deserve and should have access insurance. But it's also because when you can't generate competition in an insurance marketplace, there are very few options available to try and drive down premiums and costs for consumers. So that does leave, um, you know, a monopoly essentially for bear, for those rural counties that only have one carrier. So what, what what's, the, what's the situation in this state now? Do you, do, do you wish you had two more big companies in here? You know, how many? I mean, is it, an, is it an uncompetitive marketplace essentially now? There's competition in the urban areas. Um, but yes, in the rural areas, there's no competition. There's one carrier. And so, uh, yeah, I wish that we had at least one, maybe two other carriers to generate some competition to see what pricing we could have um, for consumers all over the state. Uh, really, I mean, one of the things that's so important to me is that people have access to insurance, but that doesn't mean you have access to care. So there's that whole complicated mess that you all have been paying attention to for years, too, that just because you have insurance doesn't mean you're going to be able to see a physician or the right kind of physician. Real problem in the rural in the rural. Absolutely. Real problem. Real, a very serious problem. And so we're just really trying to, I, I mean, I, I see the exchange as a part of the whole system of healthcare in our state, and we want to work collaboratively to improve all of those areas because our consumers benefit too. My, my question, I guess, sort of forward looking is, is what can the legislature, you know, we've done, we've t talked a lot about, you know, Congress and, um, you know, I feel like during our conversations throughout the summer, it was, you know, well, if Congress does repeal and replace, you know, could the legislature do anything? But in Nevada, obviously, we have this this setup here where legislature only meets for 120 days every two years. So even though we're still a little ways away from the next legislative session, you know, we're gearing up toward the elections. The the folks who will be up in Carson City are, are busy campaigning right now. Um, what could the legislature do, you know, come 2019 to um, mitigate some of these problems, stabilize, you know, uh, reduce premiums or sort of address any of these sort of, um, you know, unintended or, or even 
unintended consequences. Well, I would start just a little bit higher up the chain. And if we could, if I could have a wish list of what could happen in the federal government, and that would be to pass some stabilization efforts there to to recognize that people are being hurt by the policies that are being ignored. Um, and so I think if we could have some stabilization there, we would be able to generate additional com competition in our state. That being said, this next session, we will probably be absent of any federal stabilization efforts. And other states, uh, like Maryland just recently, for instance, in Oregon and Minnesota have been uh, successful in creating state-based reinsurance programs that have prevented significant price increases. So right now, the Division of Insurance is doing an actuarial study that's part of a waiver that we'll have to submit if we go that path um, to really demonstrate how a, a reinsurance program could help stabilize or decrease premium rates here in our state. Can you explain what a reinsurance program is for our <laughs> listeners? Sure. So reinsurance is... Um, uh, when, in, in, for instance, we, we would cap for uh, a, a consumer's spend. So if somebody had a heart condition, let's we're, I'm just using arbitrary numbers here, the insurance company would, for instance, be on the hook for $250,000 worth of that person's care. Anything over that would come out of a reinsurance pool. And so a reinsurance program is essentially putting together a pool of money to to pay back carriers for anything over those maximum amounts. So we only have a couple minutes left. I wanted to wrap up by asking a question uh, I wanted to ask you actually for a while, which is, and you mentioned the governor uh, earlier and him being supportive. Governor Sandoval did not support the Affordable Care Act. But once it was the law, he said, you know what, I'm not going to let people go without coverage. He expanded uh, Medicaid. He obviously was very upset about the problems with the exchange. He expressed that. Mm -hmm. How often do you talk to the governor? Does he check in with you? Does he say, how are things going? Does he make suggestions? Do you call him and make, make it? How often do you talk to him? You know, I talk with uh, his chief of staff almost at least a couple of times a month, um, pr probably a lot more than that this last summer. And Mike has been extremely um, helpful. His background is as being the longtime head of health and human services. So he gets the issues. Absolutely. He understands the money. He understands how it all works. He was a part of the setup of the exchange originally. Um, and the governor has been in pu public service announcements that the exchange has made and has been very supportive of us. Um, so I, I have a pretty good relationship and speak with them frequently. It's got to be a little bit unsettling for any state employee when there's about to be a change in administration. Governor Sandoval's term limited. There's going to be going to be a new governor. N none of these folks running really understand health care. At, at least it seems to me they haven't been involved in I'm not criticizing them. They just, they just don't know it. It's got to be a bit unsettling for you to not, not know what the future might be six, eight months from now, no? Well, absolutely. I'm a human being. Um, but I would say that, that aside from that, it's more of a educational opportunity. And what I'm really focused on is whoever our new governor is, educating them on what functions the exchange fulfills for our state, but also on where we're going with our transition away from healthcare.gov, because I really truly believe it's very conservative in value. We're trying to achieve significant cost savings and take back control fully in our state. And those really are conservative values. All right. Well, we are out of time. Uh, Heather, thanks for coming on, taking the time to come on Indy Matters. Megan, thanks for asking questions that made sense as opposed to mine. Thanks to <laughs> both of you. A reminder, our podcast interviews are now available on KUNV, the university's radio stations, 8.30 p.m. on Thursdays. We love being partners with UNLV in all kinds of ways. That's all the time we have for this edition of Indy Matters. We want to know what you think. If you have ideas, criticism, or yes, even praise, 
Email us at ideas at thenvindy.com. Please check out our site if you haven't already, thenevadaindependent.com. You can even support our work. That's my favorite button on the entire site. Please rate us on iTunes and subscribe. You can also find us on Google Play. And even though I'm a techno moron, I figured out how to get us on Stitcher finally. I want to thank Heather again for being here. I also want to thank our wonderful hosts here at KUNV on the campus of UNLV. And as always... Many thanks to Joey Lovato, our fantastic producer, who makes us all sound... Podcast smooth. Megan is podcast smooth. I'm not Heather. <laughs> Heather's pretty high in the podcast smooth uh, category and spectrum as well. I'm John Ralston. Thanks for listening to Indie Matters. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>